0: The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series created by Mercedes Lackey and Steve Libby, presenting Book Two, The Hunt, A Hard Rain Is Gonna Fall, Part One, written by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin, read by Veronica Jagger. Most of the time, Atlanta was so humid you could almost cut the air. Today there was no almost about it. The air was super-saturated, and the black clouds slowly rolling towards the city promised that it wouldn't be long before the place was under what some of the locals were calling a toad strangler. Those clouds weren't quiet either. There was enough lightning and thunder off on the horizon that John Murdoch was fighting to sleep through the mid-morning, if not the afternoon. Working all night, in addition with the handyman stuff he did during the day, took its toll. Nightmares didn't help much, either. When he finally did manage to rouse himself from bed, it wasn't even dark yet, aside from the clouds blocking out the sun. His squat was muggier than usual, leaving John's clothes soaked with sweat. It'd be worse once he got outside, of course. He could only hope that the storms would have a nice accompanying breeze to keep him cool while he did his errands and made his rounds in the hood. It hardly seemed fair. The weather reporter on the tube was getting positively frantic with his flash flood warnings, and John had to wonder how all the folks in their tents and temporary shelters were going to weather this one. Well, his people would be all right. <laughs> his people. Damned as thing, but that was the most honest way to describe the situation. He was responsible for them now. He wasn't so much of a leader as he was just someone that could get things done. The neighborhood people came to him when they had a problem. If he couldn't solve it, he could point them in the direction of someone that could, or try his best to help them anyways. This wasn't to say that the Hood was helpless. Everyone had banded together a lot since the attacks and had become fairly self-reliant. Still, John was there for them, and they used him like the resource he had become. He refused to get used to it, much to the chagrin of Jonas. Jonas seemed to think that he should just settle down into the position of local sheriff and get over it. He couldn't. He just couldn't do it. He'd never been a fan of the police and was even less of one now. And yet, he couldn't not do it either. He couldn't make himself walk away from these people. Who would take care of them if he didn't? John privately dreaded the day when things got back to normal and some official decided to poke around. Or worse, to offer him a job. And things just weren't stable enough yet for them to take care of themselves. He steadfastly refused to listen to the little voice in his head that asked, And what if they never are? Shaking his head to clear out that troublesome line of thinking, John got himself cleaned up to start his walk of his territory. Pistol, jean jacket, boots, and a cap. He was set. The little voice in his head gave a last sardonic snicker and receded into the dark depths of his brain. Rain or shine, someone had to check on things. Bad guys didn't stop for flash flood warnings. But the moment he left his door, he wondered why he had bothered with the cap, since it was plastered flat to his head by the pounding rain and seconds. If there had been wind, he would have suspected a hurricane. The rain was coming down that hard. Rain nor shine. Pulling the collar of his jacket up higher, he trudged off through the flooded streets. The worst part about hard rains like this one was that all the trash and filth came up with the deluge, clogging Everything. "'Garbage floated up in the storm sewers and got washed down off roofs. "'Add to that, the dust and powdered brick and wreckage... "'Yep, the garbage was hitting the streets, usually in more ways than one. "'Tonight was no different. "'John was only a few minutes into his walk when he saw quite the scene unfolding. "'Underneath one of the few working streetlights in this part of town, two people were fighting. "'Scratch that, one person was beating the ever-living crab out of another.' The storefront that they were brawling near had been smashed in, bits of glass littered in the lamplight, and a few boxes were scattered in the street. That store had only just reopened, too. Cracking his knuckles and shrugging off his sopping wet jacket, John started off at a clumsy jog to reach the pair. "'Hey, knock it off, you two! Hey, knock it off, both of you!' No guns were in evidence, not even knives. This looked like a garden-variety drunken brawl, or a couple of crooks getting into an argument over the spoils of their latest heist. John was a few paces from the stronger-looking one when it happened. He felt a sharp pain in his left bicep. A needle dart of some sort was sticking out of it. Immediately he began to stumble, finally splashing down on his hands and knees. The world swam in front of him, the dirty runoff water and rubble blurring. John's head began to feel very heavy. And his breathing was slowing down. Poison? Tranquilizer? Something? Straining, he managed to turn his head to his left flank. Three men carrying assault rifles and dressed in nondescript black military uniforms. Ninja suits, the kind of stuff you saw in Mall Ninja and Soldier of Fortune magazines, quickly closed in on him, setting up a perimeter. Looking over to his right, he saw three others doing the same. The two bruisers that had been fighting when he showed up had stopped. The smaller one was shivering in a pile under the lamp, and the tougher one was walking very calmly towards John. He shrugged off a dirty trench coat, revealing a similar getup as the other men. The sole difference was the pair of swords that hung on his belt, one long and one short. The man had a swagger, a self-assuredness that set John's teeth on edge. He's a smug bastard. Feeling his anger rising that he'd been stupid enough to walk into the trap, John's vision began to clear, strength returning to his limbs. He didn't let on, though. He kept his breathing erratic and acted as if every move pained him. Finally, he looked up at the tough brawler. He assumed that the one with the swords was in charge. Who... are you? He choked out. The leader ignored him. Secure the package. We're leaving as soon as I tie up this last loose end. The leader turned to face the shaking man on the ground. Jean caught a glimpse of an insignia stamped onto the sheath of the longer sword. It was a single snake coiled caduceus like around a sword. The sword was silver, the background red. The snake was black. Son of a black snake. The team closed in around him. They figured he was beaten and had already slung their rifles. John reacted. He splashed hard to his left, flinging gobs of water and trashy muck into the eyes of the nearest murk. In an instant, he was on his feet, lunging right. A flash of hands, and he had shattered the collarbone of one of the commandos, ripping his rifle away and snapping its sling. No time to bring the rifle to his shoulder, John swung it in a wide arc, pivoting on his back foot. The butt of the stock connected with the blinded Merck's temple, and there was a sickening crack. From the stock splintering, or the man's skull, John didn't know, and didn't care. The package must be him, for some reason they wanted him alive for now, but he wouldn't stay that way for long, no matter what the reason was that they were taking him. There was no way out of this except over bodies. He hefted the rifle and swung it backhanded, aiming low into his right. One of the commandos had taken a step forward and tried to grab his shoulder. The rifle fractured his target's knee, sending a cruel shard of bone to protrude through his BDU pants. The merc screamed, crumpling lopsidedly to the ground as his leg collapsed. John jumped over him, the rifle clattering to the ground as he was reaching for the murk with a shattered collarbone. He grabbed the back of the man's ski-mast head, then hooked his thumb. A split second later, he had jabbed his hand forward, puncturing the mercenary's eye and ripping it out. Drenched with rain... John's hands were already slippery. The fluids and blood that gushed over his thumb made no difference as he let go and moved on to the next target. The man's scream spiraled upwards into a whistling shriek, then stopped as he passed out cold from the pain and dropped into the gutter. One more on the right side. The man had cleared his pistol from the holster on his thigh subload and was racking the slide. Stupid. Didn't keep around in the chamber? Gonna cost you. John turned his body so that it was parallel to the pistol, and then quickly stepped next to it, gripping the merc's wrist with his left hand and the semi-auto's barrel with his right. John twisted the pistol sharply so that it was perpendicular to him, but still pointed in a safe direction. The merc's finger snapped, bent outward from his palm, completing the movement and moving behind his opponent. John placed the disabled man in between himself and the remaining mercenaries. No time to wrench the gun free and ready it. John drew his own pistol from the back of his waistband. Suppressed rifle fire sent supersonic cracks shrieking into the rainy night. The muzzle flash and report was muted, but they weren't using subsonic rounds. A moment later, the crack and flash was uncannily echoed by a nearby lightning strike and simultaneous boom of thunder. Rounds impacted with John's hostage, and the man's body went limp in a moment. John watched as the top of his head exploded into a mist of bone, blood, and brain matter. Falling backwards, John cleared the target box and began firing. No time for looking down the sights, he relied totally on point shooting. He killed one for sure and wounded the last remaining commando. Rolling the body to the side, John got up into a crouch. In a blink he had ejected the expended magazine for his pistol and loaded a fresh one, thumbing the side released a chamber a new round. Another lightning strike and explosion of thunder lit up the street and added the smell of ozone to that of cordite. The injured Murk was on his back, pistol in hand. John's mind barked a harsh laugh, reminded of something he was asked once a long time ago. Are you injured, or just hurt? He shot the last murk twice in the face. John had been taught that in a self-defense situation, you didn't care how much damage you inflicted. Your goals were to end the fight as quickly as possible, and then get away. John didn't want to have to worry about someone reporting back. Killing these losers would keep him from having to kill more second-rate maul ninjas or so he hoped. Standing up to his full height, he walked around the irregular circle of dead and dying, and finished the job by shooting each in the head. More lightning cracked, punctuating and covering his shots. If anyone had heard this, and he frankly doubted they did or cared, by the time the storm was over, there would be no signs of the slaughter. John ejected the magazine from his pistol, examining the back of it. He still had two rounds, plus one in the chamber. He hadn't brought a third and fourth magazine. He didn't think he'd need them tonight since he hadn't fired his pistol since starting these patrols. Slamming the magazine back home, John looked over to where the street lamp was blazing sickly yellow light. The black Snape team leader, the one with the swords, was standing calmly. His palms were resting on the pommels of the still-sheathed swords. "'Has this guy never heard of what happens to folks that brings knives to gunfights?' If I were you, John Merk... John raised his pistol and fired twice at the Murk leader. Talkers. They're always talkers, for some reason. Just as John was sighting his follow-up shot, something flat and shiny was flying towards him, and before he could react, which was saying something with his reflexes, his pistol was knocked from his grip and into the darkness, his hand cut on the back. John's gaze was just returning to the Murk when he felt the first cut, a tickling slash across the ribs. Enough to draw blood, but not enough to nick organs. John hadn't noticed the murk leader taking the sword out of its sheath, but he sure noticed how sharp it was. Goddamn- Ow! Was all that John managed to cry out before the leader was on him again. John lashed out, leading him with a strong jab followed by several kicks. The surviving merc easily dodged all of John's attacks, parrying with the flat of his blade or simply bashing him with a limb. John realized that his opponent was toying with him. He was keeping John at sword's length and trying to tire him out. John made a gamble. He turned his back to the mercenary and knelt down. Over the sound of the pouring rain, John thought he heard a whisper of words with the curiously toneless quality of a voice over a radio. The leader paused for half of a second and then surged forward. John twisted around, bringing his right hand slashing upwards in an uppercut. He was clutching a chunk of concrete and hit the merc squarely under the chin, staggering him. John threw the piece of debris as hard as he could at the mercenary, who turned to have it strike him in the shoulder, twisting around and bringing his sword up into a ready position. Serious for you now, ain't it? John didn't have time to twist out of the way or slap the blade aside. Lightning flashed, thunder boomed, and John felt a dull thud as the blade of the longer sword plunged into his side. The mercenary was up close to John, their eyes locked together, still smug, still cool and collected. With a grunt, John smashed his head forward once, twice, three times. His opponent's nose cracked and started to spew blood through the ski mask. John locked his arms together and smashed them downward, breaking the leader's grip on his sword. Stepping back, turning, and then launching himself backwards, John cried out in pain as he impacted the day's mercenary. He swayed on his feet and then fell forward, twisting in time so that he didn't land on the handle of the sword. The merc had a hole in the front of his uniform, displaying pale flesh that was just as quickly flooded with blood. His hands were on his short sword, the blade already halfway out of his sheath. Then, the man's eyes rolled into the back of his head, and he collapsed, dead. With a gasp of agony and curses muttered through clenched teeth, John pulled the sword out of his side, bringing it out as straight as his shaking hands could manage. It cut through the water, disappearing as soon as he had dropped it. Had it hit anything vital? He couldn't tell. His augmentation shut out most of the pain, flooding him with the endorphins that were supposed to keep him fighting long after everyone else had dropped. This time, he didn't have to fake the pain. He looked down at himself, and he knew it was bad. Worse than it felt, probably. Probably. And he had a limited amount of time here, buoyed up by adrenaline and endorphins, with extra control from his implants to get done what needed to be done. And just as he thought that, the implants kicked in, numbing him down to the bearable level. He got to his feet, methodically going through the bodies and collecting all of their equipment, even down to their boots. It wasn't surprising that they weren't carrying anything that could be used to identify them. Well, except for the emblem on the sheath of the longer of the two swords a bit of vanity that the dead merc would probably have paid for eventually if John's bill hadn't come in first. Once he was done, he had amassed a nice pile of tactical gear, rifles and boots, all soaking wet. Now to the other business. Slowly, John began clearing away some rubble from across the shop. Once he was done, he dragged each of the bodies to the pit he had created, and then closed it with as much broken concrete and bricks as he could stand to, The pain was finally getting past the reserves of his strength. His purpose in throwing the bodies under a destroyed building was twofold. First, no one would really pay that much attention to some bodies in rubble. Disaster relief services were still uncovering people from the invasion. After tonight's rain and a few days in the heat, he seriously doubted that anyone would care to examine them too closely either. At most, they'd chalk it up to the dump site for a gang hit. Second... Black Snake would be wondering what had happened to their team. If they had bodies, they'd know exactly what happened. Making those people disappear, however, would scare someone. No one would know what had happened. No one would know if the disappeared people might show up again. Had it been John? Had it been the Nazis? Had it been Echo? No way to tell. Knowing was good. Not knowing was terrifying. And it just might be enough to keep him from having to kill more merc goons. He'd need someone to help stitch him up and to carry the gear back to his place in the morning. He could have done both himself, but he was honestly too screwed up at the moment to want to. He'd have to take the rifles and sidearms with him tonight, though. Wouldn't do to have some kid find them after the storm cleared up. Lugging the rifles and pistols in his arms, John finally remembered the one man still alive, aside from himself. The stranger was still on the ground, under the lamp shaking almost to the point where it looked like he was going into convulsions. John staggered over to him, weaving a little from side to side. "'What's your story?' John barked. "'He hired me. Bait for you,' the man recoiled from John like a wounded animal shrinking away from a predator. You "'Gonna kill me?' John looked at him thoughtfully. Nah, I'll leave you for someone else to deal with. I'm done for tonight. Get out of this neighborhood and you'll live a while longer. Without another word, John continued to bleed and slog his way back home, disappearing into the rain. He might be closer to dying than living. C'est la guerre. Jonathan Fries liked his job. What was more, he was good at it. Tonight was a pisser of a night, but he was getting paid. It sure beat a cubicle. Their job was to bag and tag a meta that BS wanted alive. He couldn't fathom why, but he didn't really get paid to worry about such things either. The team for the job was assembled locally, pulling a number of different guys from security jobs for corporate headquarters and government institutions, The operation leader was called in from out of town and brought a weird ninja guy with him to lead the team. After everyone was briefed on the target's location, abilities and likely avenues of retreat, the op leader sent them out to take care of business. A stealth chopper ride later and they were set. Freeze hated having to climb the water tower in this rain, but it was his pre-planned spot to set up his lurch. The thirty-pound rifle that he was lugging with him wasn't helping things. Not only was it a load to tote, but he was the tallest and most conductive thing for at least a couple blocks. He just hoped there was a lightning rod somewhere so he didn't end up a crispy critter. His rifle deployed, his body settled into a semi-comfortable prone position, and his comm gear double-checked. All he had to do was keep his eyes peeled and wait. The trap they had set up was pretty decent. There's not much arguing a person can do with tranquilizers and a half dozen assault rifles. There were some pretty tough metas out there, resilient ones that could shrug off bullets and even bombs or worse, but they were a rarity. And most of them were already with Echo or Blacksnake or Jail. Well, or apparently were super Nazis. This Joe was none of the above. If things went south, Freeze had a friend in Mr. 50 caliber BMG. It was a heavy round, normally reserved for anti-material roles, but the head honchos didn't want to take chances. A few hours later, he saw the package, walking down the street on the outside of the neighborhood he inhabited, just like their intelligence had indicated. He notified the team leader using their op order. Deliberate, stage left. Package, unarmed. Approaching from the east, forty meters approaching slowly. All he received was a cold double-click on the comm and acknowledgement. He watched their target through his rifle scope. It was monstrous-looking, but it had nifty things, like Generation 4 night vision. It wasn't perfect, especially at these ranges, but it was better than using moonlight. He saw the target, sopping wet, moving closer. Saw the team's clothes after he had fallen to his knees, and then... The comms exploded in chatter. In an instant, the man was on his feet, moving like a blur. Within seconds, several of the retrieval team members were down, some undoubtedly dead freeze butched up his rifle stock, settling it onto his shoulder. Things had definitely gone south. But he hadn't gotten the go code yet. He had to follow procedure. Clicking his comm over to the leader channel, he radioed back to base about the rapidly deteriorating situation and how chances for success were diminishing. Within seconds, he had a kill order authorized. He relayed this to the team leader, lining up his shot without missing a beat. He already had the range dialed in. Got him. Stand by. Center of mass, center of mass, center of mass. Gotcha. Jonathan Freeze's fingers slowly tightened on the featherlight trigger. Seraphim was all but invisible in the pouring rain, with her fires dimmed down to next to nothing. This was just as well, as she hovered above and behind a water tower on the top of a roof of an industrial building, Not thirty feet from a man stretched out prone on the roof of the tower, a rifle propped up and aimed below him. He was dressed in dark gray that blended into the gray metal of the roof, but he could have been dressed in scarlet and not been seen in this weather. Between the rapidly closing dusk and the rain, he too was all but invisible. A mortal would have frowned or sighed. Seraphim did neither. Navigating the blind spot around the life of John Murdoch had brought her here. Knowing the darkness of the souls of so many that had joined Black Snake, she was neither surprised nor disappointed. They had made their choices. This man had made the choices that brought him here, and those choices had summoned her. She had sensed this moment in the futures, and had waited until he was fully preoccupied with his target before igniting her fires and drifting down between him and his target, silent as a soap bubble. Freeze went mind-blank with utter terror, a blur of fire in his scope and a terrible fire in his mind. You are a wicked man, Jonathan Freeze, something said in his brain, which was nothing but the truth. The choices that led him here had uniformly been bad, beginning with the wanton slaughter of wildlife with a BB gun at age five and ending on this rooftop, a contract killer in the employ of Blacksnake. But, as was predictably the case, he had rationalized all these choices. He told himself that he'd had no choice for those he could not rationalize. In his own mind, he was justified, a hero. But now he could not rationalize that any more. The truth was burning in his mind. He recoiled, letting go of his rifle. Scrambling away on his belly, he was desperate to get as much distance between him and the terrible weight on his mind as possible. Without realizing until it was too late, Freeze went over the edge of the water tower, screaming pitifully as he plummeted to the asphalt below. Seraphim watched as the sniper followed the rifle over the side of the shoulder. Seraphim watched as the sniper followed the rifle over the side of the tower. Felt his life end with a sickening crunch on the pavement below. And that, too, was his choice. She banked her fires, bowed her head, and sank down to the rooftop, giving over a moment to mourn. That was her choice. John's gray shirt was soaked with blood from the stab through his abdomen. He was bleeding out, with blood flowing freely from the entrance and exit wounds. The sword hadn't hit a vein or an artery, but it didn't need to. You could bleed to death just as efficiently from an injury like this one. He had used up his blowout kit to try and stop the bleeding. Blowout kits were normally used on gunshot wounds, though. He was dying, and he knew it. His heartbeat was speeding up, and he was getting dizzier and weaker with every step in the driving rain. The circumstances being what they were, John couldn't help but to think back on his life. Growing up in Virginia, his parents, school, and friends. He'd had friends once, and a life graduating college and joining the military, with his retired army father and stay-at-home mother proud to see him in uniform. Basic. Rangers. And then later being lucky and skilled enough to make it into the famed Delta Force. Several tours of duty, some in the Middle East and South America, and then the program. The changes there and... her. Escape, and then five years on the run from everything and nothing but mostly himself. And here he was, with nothing much to show, nothing much accomplished, and all of it ending in a rain-drenched street. Well, that wasn't true, he had genuinely helped some people. The people back at the bar when all of this started, some scattered and lucky souls he had found in the rescue work of picking through the wreckage, and the people of his neighborhood, his adopted territory. It still sounded strange to him to think of himself as part of that group, but he knew it was true now. There were also the people he had killed and maimed, No small number in the last few months. He didn't enjoy killing, but he didn't do it casually either. The lives saved and the lives taken all added up. A good tally for just one dumb jerk. A good ratio. John was starting to gasp for breath, air hunger, since there wasn't enough of his blood to carry oxygen away from his lungs. He didn't have much longer, but his feet continued to carry him onwards. Those implants, they'd keep him walking until after he was dead, maybe. John Murdoch. Zombie. Brains. (laughs) The hilarity of it was too much and started him laughing. He didn't have the breath to do it, but he laughed anyways, which gave way to hiccups. He laughed even harder and must have been a terrible sight. Except there was no one out here to see it. If a dying man gets the hiccups and a toad strangle a rain, does anyone hear it? He was stumbling more than walking now. He had a general idea of where he was going, but was getting to the point where he was past caring. Sitting down and resting was seeming like an increasingly good idea. But he was stubborn. He knew that if he stopped now, he'd never get up again. So? He kept walking. After what seemed like forever and then some, he reached his destination. It was a worn-down firehouse with an adjacent warehouse on the edges of the factory district. The door for the firehouse had been replaced with a sturdy metal one that looked like it belonged on a bank vault. Over the top of the door was a red star with Cyrillic letters in gold in the middle of it, the letters looking like CCCP. That wasn't what they were, of course. The letters really stood for S's, not C's, but 99 rubes out of a 100 wouldn't know that. John staggered up the concrete steps, almost slipping and ending his comedy right there. He made it to the door one hand clutched at his side as he slammed a free fist against the heavy portal. The last of his strength used up, John fell to his knees, hand still holding his injured side. Keep your shirt on, came a muffled voice from within. Good English? It puzzled him. There were several banging and clunking sounds, a curse, and the door was hauled open with a harsh scrape. John was bathed in light and warmth from within and he squinted up at the female silhouetted by the glare. Jeebus Clooney Frog, said the woman, who dropped to her knees beside him. She knocked his clutching hand aside, slapped her own where his hand had been, and bellowed at the same time. Sophie! John chose that time to slip into unconsciousness. Good ratio. For one guy.